on the one hand, you have a bunch of buyers who are saying the opportunities are coming in Q4 or they're coming in Q1 or whatever that may be. And everyone thinks that. So no one's looking today because I think it'll be, the grass will be greener in a few months, which I think is kind of silly uh, to, to a certain extent, because if everybody is saying, I'm not going to look right now, that's less demand. And I want to take advantage of that. I'd like to show you why knowing your why is the start of your journey. Without a strong why, it can be so difficult to reach your maximum potential. My name is Dr. Jason Ballara, and every week I meet with real estate investors and mindset specialists that are taking action in order to build a life according to their own terms. We will break down what drives successful people and allows them to achieve at such a high level. If you are a professional wanting to break through, or simply someone that wants to hear an inspiring story, the Know Your Why podcast is made for you. Hi everyone, I'm Jason Ballara and this is the Know Your Why podcast. Today I'm here with Will Matheson. Uh, Will started his business with his brother in 2017, although before recording, maybe a little bit before that. Uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll go into, into the background, but um, started their company, uh, Matheson Capital, and started with uh, acquisition in Los Angeles, but then built your company to over $100 million of uh, assets under management. So, Will, I want to I want to hear your story kind of from your words. I know we talked a little bit about recording, but I want to, I want to give you the chance to kind of tell the listener your background and everything, how you've gotten into this space. Uh, but before we do that, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for taking the time out this morning um, to come and share your story. I, I really do appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Well, let's let's start there. Let's just hear your background, kind of kind of how you got started. So Matheson Capital really started actually eight years ago this month, uh, August 2015. My brother and I, Evan, were 23 years old. We were working at Marcus and Millichap in the Raleigh office, and we were on a system where we were essentially getting paid. Um, minimum wage. We weren't taking part in commissions or anything like that. It was, you know, seven twenty-five an hour all the way back in 2014. It blows my mind how times have changed. So we, um, we had a client who was in a 1031 exchange. They split their exchange. So they had to place some money here, some money there. And they ended up with a million dollar equity shortfall. They um, they needed a million dollars. They didn't have it. So the lead broker on our team said, start calling around, try to find a $1 million hard money lender. And Evan and I looked into it, Evan, my twin, and we eventually thought, well, I think we could raise a million dollars. We could get it personally guaranteed by the guy. We could get a first lien on another one of his properties. So let's do that. And that was how Matheson Capital was originally founded. We raised the money. We put a hard money loan down on a, a first lien on his property. And we held that loan for about 16 months until, I don't know, not, uh, December, 2016. And that, that's how we got started. As far as when we started buying, uh, we decided brokerage wasn't for us. So we stopped that in spring 2017 went to Columbia University's Master's in Real Estate Development program, bought our first deal in Los Angeles, as you mentioned, January of 2018, while we were still in the program, bought another deal out there, and uh, 
ever since we bought our first Carolinas deal in 2019. And that's where we've been focused ever since. Great. And so why Los Angeles? I mean, why it sort of seems like a lot of people, uh, and even on the show, people talk and they're like, stay away from California, stay away from Los Angeles, don't invest there. It's a terrible idea. What, what, what sort of brought you to that point? So the reason we bought the property in Los Angeles, uh, the two properties in Los Angeles is because we had a classmate in the program a guy by the name of Mitch Lindsay. He brought it to our attention. He said, Hey, I think this is a really good opportunity. He explained the why he was looking for investors and it was a small property. It was $800,000. We partnered with him on it. We raised the money because we'd already raised a million dollars before figured we can do 800,000. And uh, we owned the property for two months, bought it in January, sold it in March, bought it for 800,000, sold for 985. But the lesson that you mentioned, you know, avoid California, that did eventually come back to bite us. We bought a deal for second deal, May 2009 or May 2018. We were looking really good on selling it. We had an offer, a very strong offer in February of 2019. And then in March, emergency rent control was implemented, knocked 10% of the value off the property, still made money. But yeah, the emergency rent control took a big chunk out of our profits. And I haven't bought in California since. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, I live here, I live in Los Angeles. And I, I think it's just a, it's a very different set of problems that you run into than it would be, you know, in the Southeast. So I think it's just understanding, understanding the markets and, and, what exactly challenges you face and what what you'll need to do to solve them. Um, you so that first deal, you know, you got a you got a hard money loan or you you gave a hard money loan. You raised a million dollars. It's that's that's a pretty good chunk of money for you know sort of a first capital raise. And I think you know especially given as young as you and your brother were, to just kind of start there. How did you? It sounds like you weren't even especially concerned that that would be a problem. I mean, it, it's a lot of people get into capital raising and struggle, uh, but it doesn't sound like that was the case for you. So how did you approach that? What, what was that kind of mindset? What did you what did you do to get that done? So I will say capital raising, you know, that deal was particularly easy. It had a good story, and I think it helped that we were in a first that position because I, I'm always very frank with people. Raising equity is not as easy as people make it out to be. This whole idea that if you have a good deal, the money will come. I, I absolutely disagree with. I think, you know, it depends on who you are, your track record, your network, et cetera. With with the first deal we did, you know, we started where most people start out, friends and family. And we did have a very good story. And we offered a ton of security. I can't remember all the details because it's been eight years, but roughly speaking, I think we had it set up so that we were either 800 or 1,000 points over LIBOR. We were the first lien on a property that the owner had owned all cash. We valued it at about $1.5 million, and our valuation didn't mean something. You know, We were brokers, so it was kind of straightforward to tell people, hey, this is the story. They need the money. We can get you, you know... 8%, 10% interest on it, which is pretty good. 
will be in a first lien position. So if they stop paying, we're in a position to foreclose on an asset that we think is worth 50% more than the loan amount. And on top of that, we required it to be personally guaranteed by the borrower. And we estimated his net worth at approximately $30 million. So all of that made for a pretty easy, compelling story. As I said earlier, you know, I, I think it got a lot when you're dealing with the equity side, when you're not that first lien position, when you're trying to, you know, deal with something a little more abstract than, you know, this is 10% monthly payments coming in. It was a lot harder. Um, one of the reasons we started buying such small properties, you know, $800,000, $1.4 million, $1.1 million. We started buying smaller properties specifically because raising equity when you're starting out, again, our first acquisition, not the loan, was at age 25. It's hard and we wanted the smallest equity amounts possible because it meant we were the most likely to succeed doing it. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, there's, there's, you're sort of both points, I guess, about that first one being uh, as much of a, you know, sort of safe loan as it possibly could be. And then, yeah, I mean, starting with a little bit smaller deals and raising smaller amounts of capital, it, it, I'm sure it helps sort of with your investors, helps them feel more comfortable, but also helps you feel more comfortable and confident that you're going to be able to achieve it. And so it makes those conversations uh, probably less of a desperation conversation than, you know, truly offering opportunities, which is what it is. But it's it's kind of, uh, I think when you're, you're under the gun for large chunks of, of equity, then it can get a little bit uh, frantic sometimes. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I tell this to people all the time. There, there are so many reasons that you should start small if you're going to get into, you know, just real estate in general, raising capital, real estate, anything like that. If you're the lead sponsor, it's easier to get debt on cheaper properties, or you know, the smaller the property, the easier it is to get debt. And the equity raise is less daunting. The market is typically less efficient at the lower price points. Not like single family homes. I feel like that's probably reasonably efficient, but you know, there's just the 10 unit apartment complex, the 20 unit apartment complex. It's not like Cushman Wakefield bringing out, you know, a $20 million property and getting 200 downloads on it. This, the 10 unit deals getting put on LoopNet or the MLS or, you know, not where a lot of buyers are looking. So th there's a lot of reasons to start small and, yeah, that that's one of the things we've been very staunch advocates of. Yeah, yeah. So how did you kind of scale from there? I mean, essentially uh, starting, as you said, you know, with smaller deals, but now getting up to $100 million in assets. How did that How did that process look, that growth? So part of our early strategy was to have very short-term hold periods. So our first acquisition, like I said, that Los Angeles duplex, we held it for two months. The next acquisition we held for maybe 16 or so months, 19 months. The next acquisition, our third acquisition was a property in Boone, North Carolina. Um, we still own that. We refinanced it. We have one investor who really likes the cash flow. So that one is still there, but the next acquisition we held for 23 months. The one after that was our 26 months, then we have two, you know, most of our acquisitions from anything we bought 2018 through 2020, we held for under two years. 
And the reason we did that was one, as you, if, if your goal is growth, if, if you want to grow, then, you know, five years from now, I don't want to be holding a 32 unit apartment complex because I'm optimistic that I'll own some 200 unit apartment complexes and overseeing them is just as time consuming. They all have problems. They all need to be dealt with. So that's an economies of scale thing. And two, and this goes to the point about raising capital, we were very upfront with our investors. Hey, I'm 26, 27 years old, whatever deal we were working on. I'm not going to ask you to commit to this deal for me for the next 10 years. There's other groups out there that will offer you that, who've been in the industry longer. They just know things that we don't know. I'm not asking you to marry your capital to me for 10 years. What I want to do is I want, to, I want you to date me as a sponsor. I want you to come in and here's my game plan in and out under two years. I want to get you a really nice return. You know, something that jumps off the page, 30% IRR, 1.5 equity multiple, whatever that may be. I want to do that. And then, you know, if that works out, we'll do the next one together. So by doing that, we were able to build a track record. You know, we could show that we've completed seven deals full cycle. We could deliver a concrete return. Personally, I think it's a lot easier to sell investors on, hey, my average IRR for my LPs is 40%, as opposed to I've made my quarterly dividend payment each of the last 12 quarters. It's just got a little more oomph to it. Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, that, that, was, that was how we scaled up. We did a lot of short-term holds. We delivered for those investors so they would keep coming back for more. They would recommend other people and we could show new investors, hey, we do know what we're doing. Yeah. Do you feel like, you know, given, do you feel like that's sort of market cycle dependent given that we were in such a bull market in, in those years and now it probably, I mean, I think a lot of people got used to doing these short-term holds because it was working. And now do you feel that the shift in the market is going to change your strategy or how, how do you see that, you know, sort of affecting the way you guys approach things? So the two of those really do somewhat go hand in hand. Um, when we were buying assets, everything or just about everything we were buying was going to be some significant form of value add. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that was if, you know, if we move the NOI needle by 30%, we're fairly confident that we're going to be able to sell it. So it, it wasn't the case that we were just buying these properties. The market the cap rate compression was moving beneath us. The market was heating up and we were selling something pretty much the same as we bought it, but at a better price. We were actively doing the value add. Now, as to how our strategy changes because the market's not as favorable as it used to be, our strategy was going to change regardless with our 2022-2021 acquisitions, we were forecasting longer-term hold periods for our investors because we had proven we were capable of doing what we had said we were. So, you know, we were going to expand that hold period anyway, just kind of build out. I always phrase it as building out more of a business as opposed to building out a service. Obviously, we're still providing a service to investors, but instead of saying, you know, we have to find a new deal every year for this same piece of capital, the same capital can stay in this one project for five years and we'll deliver good results. Yeah, I like that. I like, 
I really like the strategy behind it. I like the idea of, you know, here's my, here's my growth phase. Now I've proven that I can do it. And now we're going to, you know, kind of change uh, and, and shift a little bit as to how we approach these deals. It's, it is, it does seem to be, you know, kind of, as you mentioned, the, the more, I guess people with, with more years of experience tend to forecast longer hold times, you know, for, for whatever reason, uh, everybody has maybe a little bit of a different strategy, but certainly um, value add, you know, you, you want to accomplish that business plan as quickly as possible so that you've got a stabilized asset and whether you're selling it then or, you know, keeping it for the cash flow, however that works for you and your investors, I think can make sense either way. What, what do you see kind of coming here on the horizon? What do you, what do you think, what do you project, you know, for, from a market standpoint over the next uh, six, 12, 18 months? Let me ask this. Are you a baseball fan? I'm a Red Sox fan, which is... Oh, this is going to be great because I'm going to quote a New York Yankee. All right. um, I, th I think it's Yogi Berra who says that uh, people are bad at predictions, especially ones about the future. Right. right. That sounds like a Yogi so, Berra quote. <laughs> yes, it, it does. Um, so I, I had recently posted on LinkedIn that I think this is probably the best time to buy since 2009. And the reason I say that is for several, there's multiple reasons. I've, I, I'm now seeing multiple assets selling for less than they were purchased for <laughs> a few years ago, including one that was listed for less than it sold for in 2014, which is wow. unbelievable to me. You have a lot of buyers who are not in the market for various reasons. On the one hand, you have a bunch of buyers who are saying the opportunities are coming in Q4 or they're coming in Q1 or whatever that may be. And everyone thinks that. So no one's looking today because I think it'll be the grass will be greener in a few months, which I think is kind of silly uh, to, to a certain extent, because if everybody is saying, I'm not going to look right now, that's less demand. And I want to take advantage of that. At the same time, so we see prices down 15 to 20%. We see a lack of demand. We see financing being incredibly tight right now. And that, that can be for a few reasons. One, if you are, if you're a borrower who has floating rate debt exposure, I don't know how many banks are lining up to give you more loans. They might be looking at your portfolio with, you know, a 1.1 or a 0.9 DSCR and saying, why would I get on that ship right now? Right. Um, and then, you know, lending is just tightened anyway. Banks need deposits, et cetera, et cetera. So all of those factors contribute to pushing pricing down. And we didn't even mention that some sellers are just going to be forced to sell. They can't, you know, I don't care what your value add plan was. You can't outrun an 80% loan that was 4% when you got it in 2021 and now it's 9%. No value add's going to outrun that. So I think it's a good time to buy. The important thing about buying right now, though, is you want to have as much flexibility as possible, even if that means taking on a higher interest rate on your initial debt. Banks banks are very expensive right now. You could be looking at 7s, 8% loans. Meanwhile, you could get an agency loan in the high fives, maybe the low sixes. I would still take the bank loan. Um, depends on the property, obviously, but I want the flexibility to be able to refinance in two years because 
if the market's more liquid in a couple of years, the forward curve on interest rates, which you and I talked about before recording, the forward curve is, has interest rates going down. So conventional wisdom would stay. Interest rates will get cheaper. I want to be able to refinance. I don't want to be stuck with a 6% yield maintenance loan for the next seven years. I want the flexibility to refi, maybe sell when the market's a little hotter. So as far as summarizing my answer, I think now's a good time to buy. I think markets will become more liquid. I think interest rates will go back down. It's not some great insight of mine. I'm just following the forward curve and that's, that's my outlook. Yeah. Yeah. I think I agree. I think, um, you know, I have no, uh, no claim to be an expert on this other than, like you said, I just, you know, sort of looking at what the data says and looking at people that, that <laughs> study this at high level and, and see, you know, sort of where the projections are happening. But I mean, ultimately um, it's real estate is the fundamentals of real estate are good. The, the rent growth is still, it's not as hot as it was, but it's still happening. We have, uh, a tremendous amount of demand for housing. So there's, um, I think, a lot of things that are are looking at it. But but your your point about the the flexibility of your debt, I think, is is a great one. It's yeah, maybe you have a slightly higher interest rate for a short period of time, but then have the flexibility to do what you want. You know, in the in a year or two years or three years as as the market shifts again. So I think um, that's a really a great perspective on that. And, and I think uh, people people are going to want to listen to that point. Um, with So with this, you're looking at, you know, sort of talk to people about, talk to the listeners a little bit about sort of that difference between uh, bank debt and um, agency debt and kind of what you what you see aside from interest rates, sort of the substantial differences between those so in my experience, banks are a lot easier to work with. Uh, you can typically, it takes less time. You can get capital improvement draws. So, you know, instead of if I buy a property and I want to put half a million dollars of improvements into it, if I use an agency loan, I have to raise that money as equity. With some banks, you can raise that money as debt that you don't pay interest on until you draw it, which is better for your investors um, in, in some ways. You know, it doesn't dilute them. Uh, and the repayment flexibility is just a lot easier. Agency debt is not known for being flexible. You're either dealing with pretty significant step downs or yield maintenance or things like that. So the bank debt, it's easier... I, Again, I find it can be easier on the underwriting and the acquisition perspective. It's better for a lot of value-add properties in terms of not having to bring that extra CapEx money to the table, and it's more flexible. And the flexibility, as I said previously, is just the big selling point right now. I don't want to... We actually terminated a contract because the only loan we could get was like 6.2% yield maintenance for seven years and while we'd be able to buy the property we would hate that loan for the next six years mm -hmm. yeah no it's a, it's it's an interesting point it, you know it, in it the the kind of concept you have there about the flexibility i think is is uh, a very valuable one for people to listen to because i really do think 
we don't expect people don't expect to be in this type of market for five more years or seven more years. You know, the, the, if you look at historically how long recessions last, if you want to define it that way, it's just, it's just not typically this that long. So um, being able to, you know, kind of be, be ready to take opportunities both on the buy side, but on the, on the exit side, I think is important. Um, well, let me, I want to switch gears. I want to get to ask you the questions that I ask every guest. Um, and the, the first one has uh, has a lot to do with the name of the show being Know Your Why. And so I always ask everyone, what is your why? What what drives you? And, and I think I'm really interested because uh, you started at a young age. A lot of our guests come from a different background. Um, you know, they were in something entirely outside of real estate before coming in. But but what's your what's your why? What drives you? So I, I often joke that my why is that I'm married and I have a wife who I need to take care of. Uh, now that that's you know that's only a half joke. I I do need to do that, but you know we we always we always aim to put our investors first and deliver for them. It's it's not you know I'm not pretending that I'm reinventing the wheel or anything, but it's not infrequent for us. Anytime we have a closing and like our annual newsletters or anything, we, we thank our investors over and over again, because without them, we wouldn't be here. And, you know, look, call me old fashioned. We, our steps are always, you know, everything we do is looking at the shareholder, how we can best serve them, how we can deliver for them. And, you know, we want them to keep coming back. So it's not the most poetic why you've ever heard, but we want to deliver for our investors. They entrust us with their life savings. They entrust us with millions of dollars on these transactions and we want to deliver for them. I mean, it's uh, poetic or not. It, it is. I mean, investors need to be placed first. And I think that's um, unfortunately not always the case. And so I think, you know, investors will be happy to work with someone who, uh, have that, you know, have their best interests in mind and, and their, their, um, goals put placed first. So that's great. Um, tell us something about yourself that, that maybe isn't common knowledge, a special skill, a hobby, um, anything that, that you are comfortable sharing that just gets, let the listeners know you better. I mean, I can solve a Rubik's cube. I've been able to do that since eighth grade. I used to be able to do a five by five, but I've forgotten how to do that. Something about growing up and not being in high school anymore really takes your time away from the, the more important things. Yeah. <laughs> it takes away from your, your Rubik's Cube expertise. How fast? Oh, oh, I'm not one of those speed people who do it in okay. three seconds. Uh, it would it would take me like two minutes at most. I could probably scramble one and solve one during this conversation. That's still pretty fast. That's I would say. Yeah. I would say two minutes is pretty fast. I I don't know if I've yeah. I don't think I've ever solved a Rubik's cube. I'm, I'm like that. That would be go back to like high school and think about if I spent any time on it. Um, when people hear this and they want to reach out to you, what's the best way to get in touch? So you can find me on LinkedIn fairly easily, just Will Matheson. And you can also go to our website, mathcap.com, M-A-T-H-C-A-P. Reach out to us through our website. Last question for you, Will. What what piece of advice would you give to someone who wants to get started in real estate? They hear your story. They kind of um, saw how uh, how quickly you grew, how strategically. What would you tell them to get going? You heard it earlier in the podcast. Start small. 
buy smaller properties, the raise is less onerous, the debt is, you know, easier for a first time person to get, the market's less efficient. Uh, typically, the management is less efficient. I I always joke with people that, you know, if you take a 300 unit property, I don't know if it's Graystar or insert some other property manager who's managing it, the returns are, the, any change is primarily going to be driven by capital. You know, the next owner comes in, they're doing a capital infusion. The previous owner did their capital infusion. The management, I don't know how much it changes things. They're all professionals. They all know what they're doing. No, it's a great point. I think that uh, the that's the I guess the good and the bad of the of the large size deals is that it's you know sort of they are all they all professionals they all know what they're doing but yet yeah, you're probably not likely to find a huge difference uh, with a you know putting a different property management group in there to to run the property and as long as you would think if they're managing uh, properties at that level then they're not likely to be uh, to be staying in business if they're not doing a good job and not, you know, sort of don't know what they're doing. It's so, a great point. Will, I appreciate having you on. I, I, uh, I love what you've talked about today. I think there's a lot of really great points there. So thank you for your time. Thank you for coming in on the show and, and being a part of this. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Folks listening, I know you're going to get a ton of value out of what Will shared today. Uh, please like, rate, and review the show so we can get more great guests like Will. Um, and thank you all for listening. I'd like to show you why knowing your why is the start of your journey. Without a strong why, it can be so difficult to reach your maximum potential. My name is Dr. Jason Ballara, and every week I meet with real estate investors and mindset specialists that are taking action in order to build a life according to their own terms. We will break down what drives successful people and allows them to achieve at such a high level. If you are a professional wanting to break through, or simply someone that wants to hear an inspiring story, the Know Your Why podcast is made for you.